Well, the second epistle of John is one of the shortest letters that we have in the, in the entire book of the Bible. Second only to the third uh, book of John. And while these epistles come to us in these short, tiny verses, at the same time they contain what may be considered the sharpest language that we see used by the Apostle. Instructions like, do not receive anyone into your house, or even give him a greeting if they don't bring this teaching. Or whoever goes on ahead doesn't have God. Or if we go further into the book of 3 John, John says that there's this guy named Diotrephes who talks wicked nonsense, and that he will deal with them when he comes. The apostle who is traditionally known as the apostle of love has some very sharp and firm words to say about false teaching and about those who promulgate this teaching among the flock of God. And according to the occasion, and this is such a one in the book of 2 John, he uses such language. And what is at stake here in the book of 2 John and in the life that we're living currently is nothing less than the church's fidelity to God's word. More precisely, if we could sum up the teaching of this book, we would say that the big idea is this. Walking in truth and love means embracing Christ and his people and withdrawing our aid and encouragement from those who teach falsehood. Walking in truth and love means embracing Christ and his people and withdrawing our aid from those who teach falsehood. Because there's a lot of content to cover here, I've decided to kind of split this message, as we read the entire book of 2 John, I've decided to split the teaching in this book in two messages. So what we are going to work through today is focusing on what it means to walk in the truth and its relationship with embracing Christ and his people. And then we'll treat to next week looking at this idea of what it means to withdraw aid and encouragement from those who teach falsehood. And we'll see the interplay between that and walking in the truth and walking in love. So that's what we're going to do today. You can think of today as almost an introduction, some introductory knowledge to the book of 2 John. And then next week, we will uh, kind of complete our study of this book. So with that said, let's situate ourselves in the first century. Let's do like, if many of you know that uh, cartoon called Superbook, and jump now into the first century and get a brief idea of what is going on. So by way of context, John is writing as an old man. He's definitely gray-haired, has to be carried around according to the works of antiquity. And by the command of Christ, he has been shepherding the church for many years. And though we know that the Apostle John is the writer of this book, the one who's referred to here as the elder, what is contended actually is who the book is written to. In the book, we see that the elder is writing to the elect lady and her children. And commentators are divided along two lines with respect to who this is referring to. On the one hand, some people say it's a local church, and on the other hand, some people say it's an older, distinguished lady that he's writing to who he knew. So those are the, those are the two divides. I'm relying on Colin Cruz's expertise here, but he asserts that 
Most modern commentators favor the latter interpretation. Some considerations that may be marshaled, which I think are compelling to support that the local church is the referent here, is that the church is many times referred to as a lady in feminine terms throughout the entire Bible. We see this in the Old Testament and the New. But people will combat that and say, well, that particular argument just means that the church can be referred to as a woman, not that in this particular situation it does refer to the church as a woman. I think a more compelling argument to be made is that in the book itself, we have here the, the author referring to the lady in singular form in verse 5, where he says, I ask you, dear lady, and then later on in the book, we see a whole lot of plural words to describe the instruction. So I think it's best to interpret the dear lady and her children as a reference to the church being the dear lady and the children being its members. I think that's the best way to interpret this book. And that's also supported because at the end, John gives final greetings and says, the children of your elect sister greet you. Now, it would be kind of weird for John to be carrying a letter with dear little children. I mean, as much as we love kids, it would be kind of strange to just have a, a greeting from a bunch of kids from another church. So that's, that's, that's kind of some of the ways that we, we come to the conclusion that it is, it is a church that is being referred to in this letter. And though it is not important for necessarily the teaching of, of this uh, passage, I just want to highlight it to you because there's a lot of diverse opinion on this and some of the messages that I, I listened to in trying to prepare for this made it seem very strident that it has to be one or the other. I think that there is some room for believing that it's, it could be a personal letter or it could be a letter to the church and really this is nothing to quibble about because the main teaching stays the same. Now with that clarification in mind, Let's just quickly look at the specific circumstances that gave rise to the writing of this letter, as that will serve as a useful backdrop for our study this morning. And our focus at the outset will be familiarizing ourselves with the specific theological teaching that threatened the church's practice of walking in the truth. If we look at verses 4 to 6, we see that the Apostle John is giving instructions to love, and he's rejoicing that people are walking in the truth. But after giving these instructions, he says, he's writing all of these things, for many deceivers have gone into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. In other words, he's writing in response to persons who are trying to deceive this local church into believing heresy. In the words of a, a familiar theologian, R.C. Sproul, a heresy isn't merely a minor matter of faith. It's something that strikes at the heart of the Christian message. We aren't talking about a relatively minor matter, like whether the Nephilim were angels or the Nephilim were ordinary men and Christians. We're not talking about a minor matter like that. And this may sound strange, but we're not even talking about a matter such as whether regeneration precedes faith, which is an important matter. It's a reform distinctive. But certainly we can agree that there are persons who are not of that persuasion who are in the faith as well. What John is addressing here 
is an article of faith that's so important that it undermines the entire Christian message, the entire Christendom completely. And if we look at verse 7, we see clearly that it's specifically about the claim that Jesus came into the world as something other than a man. Historically, this has been known as Docetism. If any of you want to know the historical technical term for this heresy, from the Greek word which means Dokim. And at the time of John's writing, certain people who were likely associated with the Christian fellowship, they fell away by believing in this life. They fell away by believing that Jesus merely appeared as a man, not that he came in the flesh as a human being on this earth. Jesus therefore had no physical form, but merely appeared to be human. In other words, no incarnation, no substitutionary death, and no representative for us as a human to represent us before God. That is what is, what is at stake here. That's ultimately what is at stake. And that's why John is impressing upon this church this message with a level of urgency. If you looked at these false teachers though, and why the lie is so subtle, and why so many lies in this current age are so subtle, they would argue to you that they have the same Jesus that you have. If, they, if you came to them and asked, well, where did you get spiritual life from? They would say Jesus. If you came to them and asked them, well, where did you get your knowledge of God from? They would say Jesus. If you came to them and asked them, well, by what means were you illuminated? By what means were you enlightened? They would say Jesus. The same terms are used, but... The Jesus spoken of by these deceivers merely shares a common name and not the reality and substance of the same person. It's like one of those cheap knockoff brands that you see on the shelf. At a glance, you may see the shoe and the three stripes. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. What happens in Barbados? The three stripes. But notice that there's an extra D and that word is Adidas and not Adidas. Just, just know that on closer examination, what you are going to walk out with in the store is a, a full pair of Adidas's and not the real thing. And soon from now, you will have no shoes because they won't last. In the same way, that's what these deceivers were promising and these, these deceivers were holding out to this local church. What was at stake is presenting a Jesus that had the same name, but a Jesus that could not deliver the same promises to these believers. But in order to see this point more vividly, let's just see how John speaks about these deceivers. Let's do a, a quick character sketch. And what, and what I want to do is share with you three observations that I think will be helpful, but also sobering. First of all, these false teachers, these deceivers, these antichrists, they previously knew the truth, at least intellectually. From what we've explored so far, the truth that John refers to is the coming of Jesus in the flesh. That's, that's the truth that we, that is referred to throughout this entire book. John says at one point, people who do not abide in the teaching of Christ, 
And then he speaks about abiding in the truth, walking in the truth. This is one and the same thing throughout the book. What I'm trying to communicate to you is that even though these believers formally knew the truth, they only knew it at best conceptually. Every apostate was taught the words of God. That's by definition what it means to be an apostate. You, you need the faith. But that doesn't mean that they were in the faith in the first place. In, in the words of 1 John, which we studied before, and we won't get in that with now, John says in his first epistle, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it may become plain that they are not all of us. But we can infer from the text here that these deceivers knew the truth because John also implies that they went on ahead. Well, went on ahead from what? They went on ahead from the truth concerning the original message that the apostles taught and moved on to something else. So that's the, the first uh, character sketch. These deceivers formally knew the truth of God. The second thing, notice that John describes the error of these false teachers as both a denial of the faith in that he says, there are people who have come who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. But at the same time, he describes it as a going on ahead in the faith. Nearly every commentator I've read, if not all of them, take from this, this idea of going on ahead that these false teachers claim to have some sort of special knowledge over and against the believers who were their former contemporaries. And it's kind of ironic that the apostle uses the term going on ahead to be a negative thing. In our day, if you want to make progress and get ahead, that's viewed as a good thing. That's seen as a compliment rather than an insult, to be insightful rather than to be considered stuck in the past is viewed as virtue. But of course, in the mind of John, this is viewed in completely negative terms. And what is the sobering thing is that though someone can know doctrine at one point, know it intellectually, because of perhaps zeal for knowledge, because of cynicism, in that you start to question the sources of this knowledge and start to question, well, who wrote this book and what, what's going on here? You start to question those things, or maybe because of experience. There are persons who depart from the faith, who apostatize from the faith, who leave that original commitment. Though there was no life to begin with in the first place, they leave that original commitment and it's demonstrated that they were never of the faith. Someone may ultimately abandon central and key doctrines while assuming the banner of Christ, just as we spoke about. So, there, so what we should notice is that there's a desire for growth or advancement in knowledge that is no growth at all. That's not going on ahead, but that's going backward. That's not going forward with Christ, but is making a clean break from Him. So we ought to see how dangerous this is. To place yourself outside of the safety of God's revealed word is similar to driving a car swiftly down a highway that the lights have gone completely off and you're just driving merrily along. Your vision 
your ability to see further down the road is completely impaired. You don't know what is going to go on. You have no idea. But you're going headlong, guided by your own limited judgment, even though the road could be excavated ahead, or maybe in Barbadian parlance to bring it closer to home, a pothole has grown to the size of a ditch, and you're going to destroy your vector car. You may sit here and think, well, that's an extreme example. Who would drive down along a road where there's no lights and you can't see anything? Like, who would, who would do that? But just think of how many do the very same thing with the words of Scripture. Thinking that they know something more than what is contained in the Bible. Thinking that they can know about Christ more than the light that God has revealed in His holy word. Think about that. Think about how many people go about their lives thinking and seeking after special experiences, special knowledge, beyond what is in the scripture. So there's, there's a caution here, there's a warning here to be uh, observed about venturing beyond what God has revealed in his word. Well, let's move quickly to our third point as we sketch an idea of what these false teachers, these deceivers were like. Well, firstly, we, knew, we know that they knew the truth. Secondly, the description that John gives of them is that they had gone ahead of the teaching they originally received. And thirdly, based on what John says, these people do not have life. They do not have God. That third point should be obvious, but orthodoxy is a matter of life and death. These deceivers failed to believe Jesus was a man, and therefore there was no blood sacrifice provided for them. Ghosts don't bleed. Ghosts don't bleed. There's no substitution that can be made by a ghost. It's a bloody cross that we believe in, that we trust in. What you believe about many other things may not matter, but rejection of the truth is not a, a harmless issue that has no bearing on an individual's life. What someone thinks about Jesus isn't the same thing that about, or what someone thinks about Jesus isn't the same as what someone thinks about, say, the Prime Minister, or about, say, Joe Biden. That, those are two completely different things. Jesus, who he is, what he has done, is the most significant thing that you can place your trust and hope in, period. That's, that's what is at stake here. To be truly connected to God such that you can say grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Son can only be received by a heart as trusted in the, in the gospel message originally said and preached by the apostle. Your opinion about Jesus and your embrace of all that he has revealed is of eternal significance. But of course, saving faith is much more than an intellectual ascent. It's much more than that. But recognize that it's not anything less than that. There's no way that anyone who is saved goes about being saved not knowing who Jesus is and not knowing what he's done for them. We're not saved by just feeling that we're saved. We're saved by laying our trust in the historical facts of what Jesus has done. That he came into this world and laid down his life for sinners. We're saved by the historical fact of who he is, that he was incarnated, he's God in the flesh. We're saved by this, that, by trusting in that historical data, not merely by affirming it in our minds, yeah, grant that, 
but you can't go on to consent and you can't go on to trust in something that you do not believe in, something that you do not heard. So just to sum up, we know that these false teachers knew the truth at some point. The nature of their departure from the truth is likely because there was some special knowledge that they thought they had and they progressed past this antiquated religion of their peers. And finally, their departure from this teaching meant that they did not have God, that there remained no sacrifice for them because the Jesus they trusted in was not the Jesus of the scripture. Now, let's transition quickly then to contrast what John says of these believers. And firstly, I want to reiterate that John is addressing Christians here. The Christian life is described in several ways in scripture. It's described sometimes as a sprint, describing the urgency with which we have to strive. And sometimes it's depicted as a fight, describing the nature of the difficulty of our battle against sin and the world. But perhaps more prevalently, Christianity is described in ordinary terms like walking. This is such a common way of presenting the Christian life that it appears in almost a lot, or rather I should say, a lot of the New Testament letters. And it would have been familiar to anyone who's walking in, who's living in the first century. Walking is basically the way everything was done back then. You want to get food? You got to walk. You want to go and meet Jim? You got to walk to him. You want to go and buy clothing? You got to walk. So much of life in the first century was characterized by walking that slow, intentional movement towards the destination. And the same thing can be said of the Christian life. Some may walk faster than others, may have a more chipper or confident gait, but every Christian walks in the truth. Every Christian has a common commitment to what Christ has done and the original message that was preached by the apostles. And what we must recognize that is that Firstly, to use the, the figurative language and just to extend that figurative language further, is that every Christian be begins the Christian life by making that first step of holding out their hand to reach out to Christ in faith in the first place. Every Christian, by God's grace and the illumination of the Spirit, has come to believe and trust in the incarnate Son who is very God of very God, begotten and not made, and who condescended to take on the wrath of God for man. Every Christian begins their Christian journey, their first step, their first walk in that Christian journey in this way. They believe that God has made a great exchange for them, that they deserve to be on that cross, bloody and battered by the wrath of God, that they deserve to, be, to receive God's condemnation and his scorn. Every Christian starts their Christian life like that. But every Christian doesn't remain there. Every Christian progresses in the Christian faith. Though our faith may be frail and weak and punctuated by doubts at times, we keep on progressing in our knowledge of God through grace. This is what walking the truth chiefly means. It means sticking with the plain old gospel message we originally received and growing in your appreciation and apprehension of God. If you think that there's something more that you should receive from the Christian life, you're 
inherently or in, implicitly embracing the idea that you are smarter and you are wiser than God. If you think that there's something more for you to get from this text, from the teaching of Scripture, if you think that there's more to go on with than Christ crucified and Him on the cross, Him condescending and becoming a man, then you are thinking that you know more than God. You're not wiser than you, nor do you have more knowledge than you. Every progress, every act of progress we make is not a break from the truth of the past, but it's an outgrowth of the old one that we've received at inception. We don't depart from the old paths, we continue walking along. So that's, that's the way that John characterizes the Christians living at this time. They walk in the truth. In fact, he, he says that he rejoices that they walk in the truth, and then he commends them in this regard. But notice as well that knowing the teaching of Christ also brings about unity in the faith. There's a sense in which every Christian that you meet, you're united within the faith, that you have a common kinship with, that you share a common joy with, because we all know the truth. We had the 2022 survey of the Ligonier ministry called the State of Theology. I don't know if any of you know about that, but it's a survey that basically captures from various churches in the U.S. some key doctrinal tenets and where the churches in the United States are at with respect to that. And in 2022, it found that churches are more united on issues like abortion and gay rights than about central tenets of Christianity. That's what it found, the last 2022 survey, that's what it found. A church that is not united around the gospel of Christ is not a church that will last. The unity that John tells us of is our common confession that the Lord Jesus has built his church upon his precious blood and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The gates of hell are not promised to, pre to prevail against your acts of striving against racism or your acts of striving against an abortion mandate. Christ promised that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church, against the, the simple gospel message and the promulgation and expansion of that. But Jonathan, that's all well and good. But if John already knew that these Christians were walking in the truth, and he was rejoicing in that. And we see in, in the beginning that this, these churches were united because John says that he loves them and not only he, but all who know the truth because of the truth that abides in them. If John knew that, then what's the point of this epistle? What's the point of highlighting dangers to someone if John says that you know the truth and it will abide with you forever? Well, a few short considerations. Firstly, we need to automatically resist the temptation that any word of God is not profitable for believers. A, profit, a proper understanding of inspiration informs us that all scripture is useful for building us up in the faith. Secondly, God uses means to warn his people from error. 
If you think that you don't need warnings, red flags, someone waving their hands in front of your face saying don't go that way, perhaps you think that you stand and you need to take heed to the words of 1 Corinthians 10 that bid us to take heed less in thinking that we stand and talk. And a final quick point to address some pushback about what's the usefulness of this letter if in fact John is already saying, well, these people are walking in the truth and he knows that the truth will abide with them. The third, the third quick point to address that is, in the words of William Bauckham, which I found were very useful, even though a true believer cannot ultimately fall away from false teaching, it can tie them up in knots and mess them up. Quick example, the prosperity gospel. We all know that believing God that he's an ATM machine and you insert your coin of faith and out comes the goodies is nonsense. And I describe it in nonsense terms because it's nonsense. We, we, we agree with like we, we understand we can't trust in Jesus and exchange our currency of faith for health, wealth, and happiness. And yet, at the same time, can this not creep into our thinking? Because we think that he owes it to us. We get the entry fee into Christianity, we pay the entry fee into Christianity, and now it's time to cash out the money. Sometimes our mind wanders there. That's, that's just the, the truth of the matter. I know many of us have learned that through experience and biblical teaching that that's wrong, but how many times have you fallen into that trap when you were refused God's good gifts and you got angry about it because you thought that you ought to have it? Is that not a soft form of the prosperity gospel? Is that not it having its inward workings in your life? So what I'm, what I'm saying is that even though false teaching will not ultimately lead, or, or rather, even though a Christian will not ultimately be led away by false teaching such that they fall away, at the same time, it's useful to recognize that we can be tied up in knots, confused, messed up, walk in a manner not worthy and pleasing to the Lord, or not worthy or as pleasing to the Lord. Because of false teaching, we can embrace some of its tenets, even though we don't completely fall away because of them. So remember, friends, John is writing to stave off the attempts of these deceivers to alienate and undermine the fellowship that the apostles have with this church, and he's reminding them of their duty to walk in the truth. It's a warning to them so that they continue to embrace Christ. But in their embrace of Christ, they're also embracing universally all of God's people. That's, that's the warning that he's, he's presenting to us. And that's the focus of our study today. But we've spent a lot of time unpacking what the text means. And I admit that I've only given you part of what the text means. Next week, we'll finish it, but uh, we spend a lot of time looking at what the text means. Let's look at some applications. The first one is one that's not so obvious. Firstly, be careful about what you call heresy and who you call a heretic. Not every incorrect doctrine is heresy. We can infer from the pages of 2 John that those particles of faith that mischaracterize who Christ is and what he has done fit into the category of heresy as believing that 
Jesus did not come as a man means that you do not believe in a bloody cross, a substitution of a man in your place on the cross, a representative who's sitting at the right hand of God in bodily form. So we can see that clearly that that's heresy and there are perhaps others, but every doctrine doesn't fall into that category of primary importance such that it affects whether you're a Christian or not. I say this because we may do harm to the spiritual progress of others if we flippantly or incorrectly identify minor matters of faith, such as, well, you believe the Nephilim are really angels that came to sleep with men you Like, we could seriously undermine the, uh, the fellowship that we have with other believers if we go around calling everything a heresy. But at the same time, I would urge you, in the words of and in the spirit of R.C. Sproul, where we live in a world that it is increasingly true, that it seems that the only real, and I'm quoting R.C. here, the only real and intolerable heresy today is the despicable act of calling anyone a heretic. We need to avoid that as well. So the two pitfalls, identifying everything as heresy, and then the other pitfall is saying, well, nothing is heresy. We need to strike the balance in the middle. The Apostle Paul, for instance, calls out Paul's teachers in his letters by name. So it's not an unfamiliar practice in the scripture to warn people about heresy. The church is called to be the pillar and the buttress of the truth. And while our focus should be on the mission of promulgating and sharing the truth of God's word, like, we shouldn't be the church that is known as that church that just points out heresy all around. There are plenty of heresy to point out all around. But we shouldn't be characterized and known for just pointing out heresy. We should be known for our walking in the truth and our provoking others to love and our sharing the truth with the unbelieving world. That's what we should be known for. But just know that we ought to strike this balance where we carefully consider what we call heresy. In the truest sense of the word, we do this for Christ's sake and for the sake of his bride, the church. So we give no place to entertaining heresy within the body. But at the same time, we need to be careful how we use such words in the body and even among people outside of the body. So that's the first practical application. The second one, is more directly connected with the text. John says, watch yourselves. Watch yourselves that you may not lose what we, i.e. the apostles, what we have worked for. We should recognize that the Lord calls us not only to work with our hands and feet for the sake of the gospel, but as a first step to all of that work and as a precursor to all of that work, we need to let the words of Christ dwell in us richly so that we don't fall away into falsehood. We ought not to put our brains in park, in other words, when we come to church, but we ought to test everything, like the noble Bereans, test everything that is said by the words of Scripture. The heresy mentioned this morning is just one of many that can confront believers. There, there are just so many heresies out there. If you were to Google heresies, you would see pages and pages of heresies. They're just one of many. 
So, John tells us to watch yourselves. Watch yourselves that you don't get tied up with heretical doctrines that doesn't become intermingled in some way in the truth that you already know. That it creeps subtly into your lives. Watch yourselves then, brethren, that you may not lose the rich foundation of theological teaching that was built here in Barbados over the years. Watch yourselves so that this church that has sprung up today and stands here today about six years later after it was planted doesn't fall away and the Lord Jesus doesn't sweep it away because of our unfaithfulness to his word. Watch yourselves so that you may win a, a, a full reward. God in Christ has made a great condescension to us, revealing his glory in the person and work of Christ. And let us labor to the end that we strive to deepen and enrich our faith through the gospel that has been preserved for us. Consider, friends, also that you would also be forfeiting someone else's work. There are people who have labored to plant the church. There are people who have labored to minister in this church week by week. I was thinking recently about how many times John has preached, and I was just like, he's preached like over 300 times at this church. Easily. Watch yourself so that you don't forfeit that work that he has done, striving to plant and see this church flourish. And if the work and outpouring of love by John and CBC Toronto isn't enough, consider that there is one who left the church, who is God himself and is the Lord of the church, and who is ready to provide a reward to all those who hold fast to the truth of the gospel for our sake. And in the Lord's mercy, we will continue doing that, helping each other along until we obtain our full reward. Though it should be obvious that this sermon was addressed to believers and encouraging their fidelity and faithfulness to walk in the truth. If you are not yet trusted in Christ, just know that you've been deceived by something. It's not that you may have been deceived by this specific error, but if I don't put it in such bold terms that I make it more palatable, for whatever reason, you think that embracing and laying your trust in the saving work of Jesus isn't the best thing for you now, at, at best, if I could put it that palatably. Ultimately, there's a blindness that unbelievers experience and all Christians experience before coming to Christ. And I appeal to you to consider that grace, mercy, and peace can only be if you're not yet trusting in Christ, or you have not yet embraced Christ and His people, contrary to Scripture, come now and take hold of this glorious mystery to the saving of your soul.